our second, um, our second message. It's called A Short History of How the Bible Got to Us. And uh, when I start, I want to go ahead and just delve into some of the archaeological discoveries on the Old Testament, just to show a little bit of the preservation of God's Word. The oldest piece of material that we have with Scripture on it that can be traced back to the Bible is this picture of this little scroll that we see up here. Um, it's called, there was two of them, they're called the Silver Scrolls. They were found in a rock-cut tomb in Jerusalem in 1979. And um, the date, because it's silver, they can't carbon date it or anything like that, so the date ranges, but, um, but the scholars think that it could have been produced as early as the time of Elisha the prophet, around 850 B.C., or no later than the time of Jeremiah, around 600 B.C. And this is the earliest known copy of a Bible passage. And it's a copy of um, Numbers, chapter number 6, verses 22 through 27. That's the great high priestly um, blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord um, be gracious unto you and give you peace. This shows that the Pentateuch existed before the Babylonian captivity. There's many people that argue that the um, law, the Pentateuch, the story of Moses, and so on and so forth, was produced during the Babylonian captivity. And um, this is evidence showing that it's much earlier than that, that it could not have been produced during the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Going on, I think all of us have heard of this, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, um, are the oldest copies of complete books of the Bible. They are out of the Old Testament. And um, they date between 150 B.C. to 100 A.D. Um, they reveal the accuracy of the Masoretic Old Testament text which the King James Bible is translated from. The Isaiah Scroll, um, for example, which is on display in Jerusalem, you can go there and they have a huge museum dedicated to that. I hope one day to be able to go there and see it myself. But um, you can go and actually see the entire Isaiah Scroll um, unrolled, and you can see what they found in the Dead Sea uh, caves. The Isaiah scroll was word-for-word word accurate with the Masoretic text 95% of the time. Now you may say, well, there's a problem. What about the other 5%? Well, the other 5% that were found in the Masoretic text were obvious misspellings and slips of the pen by the writer of the Isaiah scroll. In other words, it's a misspelled word. You know, a word, either a letter was left out or something like that, and it was an obvious um, typographical error, and it actually showed that the Masoretic text was in the correct place, and that one was just a mistake in the spelling. It shows an incredible, incredible degree of accuracy since the Dead Sea Scrolls are over a thousand years older than the text that was used for the translation of the King James Bible. And um, it shows a marvelous accuracy and how God did preserve His Word in the Old Testament. But today we're going to talk about the New Testament how God preserved His Word. And let me explain to you um, what Paul viewed his writing, that he viewed his own writing as the Word of God. Many people wonder, how in the world did they come up with the idea that these books were inspired and these other books were not? Well, as soon as they were being written, there was an understanding that the power of God was upon it. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 37. Notice what Paul says here. If any man think himself to be a prophet, or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And so what he's saying here is, this is not just my idea, this is not my opinion that I'm giving to you, these are the commandments of the Lord. So right here we see that as Paul is even writing the Scriptures, he understands that what he's writing is more than just his opinion, it is the Word of God. Um, Peter even viewed Paul's writing the same way, commenting on Peter. I meant Peter commenting on Paul in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. He said this, uh, Peter said, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures 
unto their own destruction. Notice that Peter says, and I have it highlighted, he says that Paul's writings are also as the other Scriptures. Notice that Peter did not say that they, they twist this, Paul's writings like they do the Scriptures. He said as they do the other Scriptures. In other words, Peter said, in my view, just as much as the Old Testament is the Word of God, what Paul is writing is the Word of God. So from the very beginning, as these books are being put out, not only is the author recognizing this as the Word of God, but also other people, people with apostolic authority, such as Peter, are recognizing that these writings are the inspired Word of God. It didn't take centuries, like some people argue. Some people say, look, they have these other books of the Bible. Maybe you've heard of some of them, the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Narrative, um, just recently, very popularly, the Gospel of Judas came out. And some people are making an argument that sometime three or four hundred years later, maybe during the time of the Emperor Constantine, the church got together and decided what books they wanted to keep and what books they wanted to throw away. That was not the case. From the time of their writing, these letters were recognized as being the Word of God. And I think that's an important thing to see from the Scriptures. We'll go on. Now, let's go to another man. This man is named Ignatius of Antioch. This man was martyred in the year 108 A.D. Um, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was bishop of Antioch. You remember the city of Antioch in our Bible? Antioch, that's the place where the disciples were first called Christians, was in the city of Antioch. The place where Paul and Barnabas, they were um, sent out from, was the, was the church at Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch was a bishop of that city. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. He knew the Apostle John. He heard the Apostle John preach. Now the interesting thing about him is this. Ignatius of Antioch is the first person to quote from the New Testament in his writings. Now if you look in the New Testament, you'll see Peter and Paul and John, when they quote from the Scriptures, they're always quoting from the Old Testament as illustrations. They don't quote from each other. But the first person we have evidence of, and this is early on, a man named Ignatius of Antioch, he's the first person to quote from the New Testament in his writings. And this shows that by the end of the first century, that Christians regarded the New Testament to be as much the Word of God as the Old Testament. Very significant. So I want you to understand, there wasn't a group of centuries where people were trying to figure out what was the Bible and what wasn't. There was an understanding from the very beginning that the New Testament was the Word of God and inspired Scripture. However, the New Testament as it's being written is also attacked from its beginning. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So we see right here that there are people, even in Paul's day, that were trying to twist the Scriptures, trying to edit the Scriptures, trying to make the Scriptures say what they wanted to say rather than what God had intended for people to hear. And so, as this comes together, the Bible is going to be copied and is going to be sent out all over the world. And uh, many people wonder about certain gifts. Um, the gifts of tongues. Why do we not have the gift of tongues anymore? Let me just give you a simple explanation for it. Can God use the gift of tongues today? Of course He can. He's God. But I want you to understand, God doesn't necessarily do a miracle for people who are not willing to learn something. Why would God perform a miracle for people who have a brain and a mind who can already do something on their own? Now, speaking in tongues is speaking in an unknown language. And who is it unknown to? The person who's speaking. The person who's hearing it will understand the language. God, of course, knows the language. The, the, old I mean, the gift of tongues went away after the completion of the Bible. And why is that? Because people, after the Bible is completed, can translate the Bible into other languages. So people who don't know Greek but know Latin can read the Bible in Latin. They translate the Bible into Latin. That's why we have the old Latin translation later on, the Latin Vulgate. By the time English comes around, Somebody can take the Bible and translate it from um, Greek and Hebrew into English so people in England can know. 
but it's something that God has given us a brain and a mind to be able to learn on our own. And why should God have to perform a miracle for something that man can do on his own? Turning the water into wine is something man cannot do. Walking on the water is something man cannot do. Learning a new language is something that man can do. There's no miracle necessary. So the gift of tongues has kind of gone by the wayside over the years now. But as the Bible gets translated and spread out all over the world, the language of the world at the time of Christ, the language just like today in the world, the, the global language is English. It still is today. It may become Chinese later on, but right now it's still English. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, the language of the world was Greek. Here's an interesting thing, by the way. We don't have time to go through all of the study of language. But Julius Caesar, the person from whose children the emperors of Rome would come, men like Augustus and Claudius and Nero and Caligula and so on and so forth, Tiberius. Julius Caesar, the great Roman general, the man who could have become king of, of um, the Roman Empire, did you know he did not know Latin, but the only language he spoke was English? Some of y'all had to read William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as a child, and there's a famous uh, line that um, Julius Caesar um, says in the play, as he's being killed, Brutus comes to strike the fatal blow into Julius Caesar in the play, and his line is to Brutus, et tu Brute, which is Latin, you too Brutus, as you're stabbing me. But the thing is, Julius Caesar never said that because Julius Caesar did not know Latin. He spoke Greek. It was the language of the world, even in Jesus' day. And so the Bible's written in Greek. And so it's spread out all over the world. And as it spreads out all over the world, it'll become, in a certain location, the text that other people will copy. Uh, the Bible is carried down by men like uh, Mark down to the city of Alexandria. Did you know that Mark, the same person that wrote the Gospel of Mark, was an early bishop of the church at Alexandria? He carries the Bible down. And so right there, they're making copies of the text that they have in Alexandria. If somebody makes a mistake in that text, that same text will be copied again with that mistake in it. Somebody else makes another mistake. That same mistake is copied down again. And over time, over time, those copies being made, it produces something. A unique group of texts that they call a family. A text family. So you'll have a unique reading of certain texts in a region like Alexandria that has a, just it's just making copies of its own text. When an error goes in there, is makes it like a fingerprint that we can recognize it. The Bible's copied and sent to other regions of the known world. The Bible was altered sometimes by accident and sometimes on purpose by people in different locales. These altered versions were copied and these locales contained the same variant readings. And scholars call these readings with the same um, variant text families. Now why is that important? It's important in understanding where these um, texts that we see, for example, the Alexandrian texts, which are the basis of the critical texts, and then what we call the Byzantine texts, which are the basis of the majority texts, where they come from. And I think I have a map here. Yes, I do. I want you to look at this map, because you've heard these names before, some of them, and um, in other places. I want you to understand where the names come from. Now, I have names on the map, and each one of these names represents a text family. First off, I want you to look at the Western text family. It's located in the Western region of Europe and Africa. Western North Africa, also Western Europe, would have these types of variant readings. And they are called the Western text. Why are they called the Western text, Western family? Because they come from the Western region of the known world at that time. Look down in Egypt and you'll see a name called the Alexandrian text. It's called the Alexandrian text because the texts come from Egypt. The great city of learning in Egypt was Alexandria, and that's what gave their name to it. The Alexandrian texts all come from the region of Egypt. You look at the Caesarean text. It's a group of readings that come from the region that is marked by the city of Caesarea. And those unique readings come from the region of Caesarea. And as far as the King James is concerned, you also have the Byzantine text family. Now the Byzantine text family comes from a region known as Asia Minor. Today it's the country of modern day Turkey, but in the Middle Ages it was known as Byzantium. It was part of what they call today the Byzantine Empire. 
And because of that, it was a Greek-speaking country. The Greek New Testament was continued to be copied throughout the Middle Ages there. We'll talk about what happened to the other ones in, in just a little bit. But this is where these different texts come from. So when we talk about the Alexandrian text, they were copied in the region of Egypt around the city of Alexandria. The Byzantine text, they were copied in the region of Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey. And that's what I want you to see with this map right here, the different text families. Here's a New Testament textual tree. You see we have the original manuscripts at the top. And then we see a line of how these different groups branch out. Notice, we see straight down from the original manuscripts, we see the Byzantine text. Then we see the Textus Receptus is a, um, is a text that's produced from the Byzantine text. And from the Textus Receptus, the King James Bible would be translated. Look over to your, I guess that would be your right as well as me, and you look over and you see that the Alexandrian text branches off from the text coming from the original manuscripts. From the Alexandrian text, for the most part, you get what we know today as the critical text, and all modern English language translations are influenced or were straight translated from the critical text. So this is where our Bibles come from when it comes to these Greek texts. And by the way, when I talk about a Greek text, I'm talking about manuscripts. Okay? What is a manuscript? The word manuscript simply means handwritten. A manuscript is a handwritten copy. So that's always helpful to remember too as we go through these. And um, let's see if I have a list. Yes, I do. I want to show you all the different copies we have of it. Manuscripts. The Byzantine text versus the Alexandrian text. Now, they're discovering these all the time. They're still finding um, texts in different old museums. They're digging them up sometimes out of the sand of Egypt. But this is pretty close to what would be the accurate number today. Notice, the Byzantine text, there are 5,210 manuscripts, handwritten copies of the Byzantine text in existence today. And all these handwritten copies were written over 500 years ago before the invention of the printing press in the middle of the 1400s. So that's what we're talking about, handwritten copies. The Alexandrian text, there's only 45 manuscripts in existence today. Now look at the difference between the two. Basically, 99%, 99% of all existing manuscripts today come from the Byzantine text, which is the basis of what our King James Bible is translated from. 99% of all existing manuscripts are, um, come from the same group that our King James Bible is translated from. For the rest of them, all modern translations are produced from roughly 45 manuscripts that they found in one region of Egypt. That's where they come from. Now you may ask, why are they using those 45 and not going with what the 99% say? Very simple. The reason for that is because they believe that the oldest Bibles are the best. They're going to be the best. And the reason for that is they're closer to the original and so there was less time for errors to get into it. We're going to see later on, I'm going to make you an argument for that, that's a bad argument. We're going to see that in our next week's lesson. But that's what they argue. Their idea is the oldest is the best. And yes, there are more Byzantine manuscripts, but they're not as old as the Alexandrian manuscripts. I'm going to show you why they're not as old as the Alexandrian manuscripts today as we go through the history of this. Um, the two oldest existing Bibles known are known as the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. Now the word Codex is the name for, old, for an old book. Very early books were known as Codexes. They're not called books, they're called Codexes. The Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus are the two oldest Bibles known. Now some people make the argument that the Codex Sinaiticus at least was a fraud, that it was actually copied in the 1800s, early 1800s. Um, I have friends who believe that, but I do not. I believe that it is as old as they say it is. That's not a problem for what I believe. They, these two books, um, Bibles right here, are the basis of modern versions of the New Testament. Codex Vaticanus is named Codex Vaticanus because it's located in the Vatican Library. So it's called the Vaticanus. The Codex Sinaiticus is called that because it was discovered 
at the base of Mount Sinai in St. Catherine's Monastery at the bottom of, Saint, of Mount Sinai. Today, if you want to see Codex Sinaiticus, you go to the British Museum and it's on display in the British Museum. Codex Vaticanus is on display at the Vatican Library. The man who discovered it was a man by the name of Count Tischendorf. And Count Tischendorf counted 14,800 corrections and alterations of the text in Sinaiticus alone. In other words, somebody went in and erased and then corrected or marked through and corrected. And that was just in Codex Sinaiticus alone, 14,800 corrections and alterations. Interestingly enough, between Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, there are 3,036 textual variations between these two Bibles in just the Gospels. In the Gospels alone, there are 3,036 differences between these two Gospels. They don't even agree with each other. In fact, Dean Burgon said concerning this, it is easier, in fact, to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ from one another than two consecutive verses in which they agree. That's how much they differ from one another. Yet these two Bibles are the basis of all modern Bibles in English today. They don't even agree with each other, yet this is the basis of all of them. Now, why in the world do they, why in the world are these texts so old? As I said, the Alexandrian text, there's only 45 of them. They make up roughly 1% of all existing um, Greek manuscripts, yet they're the basis of all our modern versions. They say they use them because they are so old. They are sometimes a thousand years older than the earliest um, Byzantine texts. Why are they so old? And why are the Byzantine texts not as old as they are? I want to give you the answer for that. First off, why are the Alexandrian texts not as old as the uh, Byzantine, I mean, so much older than the Byzantine texts? It's because of the Muslim conquest. How many of y'all have heard of Islam, the religion of Islam? How many of y'all, when y'all were in school and studying world history, you heard of the Muslim conquest, where the Muslims conquered the Middle East, they conquered North Africa, they conquered Spain, and finally Spain took, um, took the country of Spain back from the Muslims in the year 1492. The same year that Columbus discovered America, the uh, Spaniards kicked out the Muslims from Spain. But they went through, and in the space of a little over 100 years, they conquered the Middle East, North Africa, and Spain. And they were the scourge of Christian Europe for another thousand years. They were always afraid that the Muslims were going to start to conquer Europe um, throughout it for another thousand years. In the conquered lands, Christians who could write Greek were reduced. And the surviving Christians left Greek as their native tongue for Arabic or another native language of their region. In other words, when you were living in Egypt before the Muslim conquest, the region of Egypt before 622 um, AD belonged to the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire spoke Greek. It was the language of their empire. So if you lived in Egypt, in, um, let's say in the year 621, you spoke Greek. That's the language you spoke. Today, if you're in Egypt, what do they speak? They speak Arabic. Or they speak a native language in Egypt called Coptic. Some of y'all may have heard of Coptic Christians um, or the Coptic language. Those are the two languages of Egypt today. But over a thousand years ago, the language of Egypt was Greek. So guess what? In Egypt, before 600, they were making copies of Bibles in Greek. That was their native language. That's the language they knew. That's what they wrote their Bibles in. When the Muslims conquered, they gave them a choice. You could convert to Islam or you could die. That's your choice. Most people converted to Islam. Those who did not, those Christian leaders were killed. And as they're killed, the ones who could write, the knowledgeable, educated Christian leaders, died out. They no longer could write in Greek. Those people who came after them, under Muslim influence, their language was Arabic, they started to learn Arabic. They started to learn the native language in Egypt, Coptic. And Greek began to be, um, finally was forgotten. So after the Muslim conquest, nobody in Egypt is making copies of the Bible in Greek. There's nobody who knows the language. There's nobody who can read the language. And so all those Bibles are not being used anymore. They're all put up on a shelf. Or they're all buried in the sand. And it would take another thousand years before a man by the name of Tischendorf 
would go over there and start pulling them out of the libraries. In fact, the story goes that when Tischendorf went to Mount Sinai to um, look for old Bibles, as he's looking around, he notices there's a trash basket. And in the trash basket, there's many different leaves from what he recognizes as an old, old book. And when he picks up the leaves and starts to read them, he recognizes that it's Greek, he recognizes that it's a very old kind of Greek, and he recognizes that what's written in Greek is the Bible. What are they doing with this trash basket? They're taking the leaves out of it and throwing it into the fire and just burning them. A Bible that dates back to the 4th century A.D. What would become the second oldest Bible in existence today, they're taking the pages from it and burning them. Why? Nobody can speak Greek. Nobody can read Greek. They have no idea what it is. And so Tischendorf saves that. They didn't have any appreciation for it. They just sit in libraries where nobody can read them. So they don't fall apart. The region of Egypt is, not, uh, is a desert region. It's very dry, and parchment is preserved throughout the centuries. You notice that they have mummies in Egypt, correct? Those bones don't deteriorate. They've been around for thousands of years. It's a dry climate. Pages are preserved the same way. And because of that, they have many, many old, old Bibles. Every copy of an Alexandrian text is before 600 A.D. Because they existed during that time. Let me show you on the map again, this conquest. You see these conquest areas again? When the Muslims would conquer, this is what would happen to the Western Alexandrian and Caesarean texts. They'd be wiped out. And the only one that would be left is the Byzantine Empire that would hold them off for another thousand years, roughly. And during that time, they would continue to copy the Greek New Testament. So the question comes now, why do we not have old copies of the Byzantine texts, texts that go that far back? Well, there are a couple of them that go back to about the year um, 400 and 500 A.D. But for the most part, they, go, they, they start about the 9th century A.D. and go up to, four, to the 1400s A.D. Let me show you the reason why. The reason of it is the development of minuscule, the minuscule alphabet. How many of you all know how to write? How many of us know how to write? How many of you all know how to write capital letters? How many of you all know how to write small letters? You know the difference between the two. Small letters are called minuscule letters. And just like we have capital letters and small letters in English, they also have capital letters and small letters in Greek. Now, before the 9th and 10th centuries, the 800s and the 900s, all Greek manuscripts were written in capital letters, or what they call uncial letters. All capitals, and there are no spaces between the words. Paper's very expensive. You don't want to waste paper by putting spaces between your words and your sentences. So all the letters would run together. And in your mind, you'd be able to read it because you know the language, but that's how they wrote but in the 8th or 9th century, they decided to develop something. They developed minuscule. It used smaller, more rounded letters and connected letter forms to be able to write easier. With these smaller letters, you'd put spaces between them. Now, they kept the capital letters for the beginning of their sentences or the beginning of paragraphs or for a title. But as far as the writing goes, they would use minuscule. Now, why does this make a difference? Well, I want to show you. Here is John 1.1. Written in uncial Greek and written in minuscule Greek. John 1 1 in arche in ha logos, chi ha theon. I know, so on and so forth. I know I don't want to bore you of reading the Greek, but what it says is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I know none of you back here know Greek, but I want you just to look at this. In your mind, which one would be easier to read? The minuscule or the uncial? The minuscule, right? It makes sense to us. Let me show you this in English. Here's John 1.1, 1, 1, written in the same style for English and written in minuscule, or our version, in, uh, in our language. Which one's easier to read? One we're used to, right? Hey, can you read the one that's in all caps with no spaces, though? Yeah, your eye can recognize it, right? But it's easier to read it the other way. Now, as they're starting to write in the new style of alphabet, that minuscule alphabet, people were leaving the old Bibles on the shelf 
and we're starting just to read the small ones. Does that make sense? It's easier to read. Why spend the time having to just pick out the words? You'd rather have the spaces. You'd rather have the, the way the, in the same syntax and the way you would be used to spelling, and you're used to reading. They didn't want those other ones to go to waste. Paper's very expensive, so do you know what they did? They took those old Bibles, and they erased that old text and unsealed. And then they put it back down in minuscule. And they did that in the eighth, I meant the ninth century and the tenth century. So all the old copies of the Byzantine text were erased and replaced with minuscule. Why? Because it's easier to read, and that's what people wanted to read. It's the same words, just using a different alphabet. Does that make sense to everybody? Hey, and one more thing about it. Remember I was talking about errors. Can I go back to the map? We're going to be done with the Greek and we're going to deal with English right after this. When we look at the map, I want to go back to this one right here. When Paul was writing, he was writing letters and he was sending them to churches, right? What were the churches that he wrote to? He wrote to Philippi, right? Philippi would be in the region of Macedonia in the northern part of Egypt, which is right near Asia Minor, and it is in the Byzantine Empire. Where's Corinth? Corinth sits, if you look at the country of Greece, there's a little area down at the bottom of the peninsula that looks like an island. It's not an island. It has a small strip of land called an isthmus, and Corinth sat right there. That's where the city of Corinth was, in the Byzantine Empire. You look at Ephesus. He wrote the letter of Ephesians. That sits flat in the region of Asia Minor. I'm, what I'm telling you is this. Most, if not all, the original manuscripts were either written in or wound up in Asia Minor. And so when copies were being made, the people in Asia Minor had the original manuscripts with them. They didn't have to make a copy of a copy that may have had an error. They could go back to the place where it was originally sitting and they could read it. If somebody wanted a copy of Ephesus, they didn't have to get it from the church of Laodicea. They could go to Ephesus and copy Paul's original letter. Now those original manuscripts would have been kept because they would have been treasures to the church and they would have been kept for at least a century or two after the Bible was written. We know they didn't last three centuries because when Constantine became emperor and made Christianity the uh, religion of Rome, his mother went all around the Roman Empire searching out what they called relics. She went looking for the true cross in Jerusalem and claimed to have found the very cross that Jesus Christ was crucified from. Did she find it? No, but she claimed that she did. But they went everywhere looking for the bones of the apostles and different things like that. One thing they never did look for was the original copy of the book of Ephesians or the original gospel of Mark because by that time they did not exist anymore but we can assume that for at least a couple of centuries, the early church was making copies from those original manuscripts. And that's what kept the region of Byzantium, from their texts from becoming corrupted, while texts such as Alexandrian, Caesarean, and Western texts all were corrupted. God fixed it with the Muslim conquest. Yeah, God used the Muslims for a reason. God used Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, God used Alexander the Great. God used many people to accomplish His purpose. And He can even use the Muslims. God is God. He can do whatever He wants. So that's the reason why we don't have very old, as compared to the Alexandrian text, very old manuscripts. They erased them to put it in a language, I mean an alphabet that people understood at that time. All right. Let's look at the history of the English Bible. We don't start in 1611. We have to start about a thousand years earlier to go through the history of the English Bible. And we're going to start with a man by the name of Cademan. Cademan. Now, Cademan was not a preacher. He was not a monk. He wasn't a priest or anything like that you would hear in a Catholic church. Cademan was a laborer at the monastery of Whitby in Northumbria. In other words, he did all the work that the monks didn't want to do. He worked there. That was his job. He cooked for them. He uh, did their garden. He cleaned around the house. He washed the floors. That's what he did. He was a laborer at the monastery of Whitby in Northumbria. Hey, he paraphrased and put into a poetical verse the story of Genesis, 
the exodus, the incarnation, that's the birth of Jesus, the passion, that's the death of Jesus, the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that's Acts chapter number 2, and the apostles' teaching. He put them all, put all of that in the English language and he wrote it in a song so people could learn it in English. Because you've got to understand something. In that day, people in England spoke what they called Old English. You would not understand Old English today. It sounds more like German than it does like our language. But that's what English was in 680, a very Germanic-sounding language. People would go to church, and the preacher preaching in the church would preach in Latin. And nobody there understood Latin. Imagine going to a church and somebody preached another language and you just sat there and took it. Brother Wayne got up. He started speaking French. Nobody in here could speak French. And you just sat there. Because no matter where you went, everybody's preaching in French. Whether you know it or not, you're just stuck. you got to go to church because if you don't go to church, you can't take the Mass. And it's very serious in a Catholic church to take the Mass. Am I correct, Brother Mark? So you go to church, your preacher is not even speaking your own language. He reads from a Bible that's in Latin. You don't understand the stories. So what does Cademan do? He's just a worker at the monastery. But he knows the stories, so he writes them in a song. And he would sing them so people could hear it. He would sing a creation song. He would sing a song about the Exodus. He would sing a song about Jesus' birth. And that is the very first instance of any Bible being told to anybody in the English language. 1,000 years before the King James Bible. Moving on, the Anglo-Saxon would receive part of the Bible into their language. Anglo-Saxon is Old English, okay? Old English, the Old English Gospels, they were completed about the year 990 A.D., at the end of the 10th century, the Gospels were translated into Old English. The Psalms and portions of the Old and New Testament were also translated. Old English is one of the few medieval languages to have the Bible translated into it. Yet they would have the Gospels translated into Old English so people could read it. Hey, before we get out of Old English, I want to show you one other interesting thing about Old English. Do you know that one of the people who actually translated the Bible into Old English was one of the kings of England? Anybody ever heard of the man by the name of Alfred the Great? Anybody ever heard that name? The only king of England that's given the title the Great. You have Peter the Great of Russia. You have Alexander the Great of Greece. Only one man was known as the Great of any of the kings of England, and that was Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great translated the Bible, part of the Bible, into English. He translated the uh, Ten Commandments into English. He also translated, very funnily enough, a negative copy of the Golden Rule. You know what the golden rule says? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What's a negative version of the golden rule? Don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. That's the negative version. And he put that into English for everybody to learn. I guess they were rough people back then. But there's the Old English Gospels. After Old English, about after 990, in the year 1066, the Normans conquered England. Now the Normans were... Descendants of the Vikings, that's why they're called Normans, Northmen. But they lived in the region, a region called Normandy, which is in France. The Normans did not speak the Viking language or a Scandinavian language, they spoke French. And when they came to England, they brought the French language with them. In fact, for about 300 years, maybe 400 years, between 300 and 400 years, if you came to England and wanted to speak to the king, you better know French, because the king of England only could speak French for about 400 years. You wanted to talk to him in the court of England, you had to know French. And the French words began to come into the English alphabet. For example, the best way to understand the difference between English words and French words that came into the English alphabet is with our food. How many of y'all know what a cow is? Right? What is the meat of a cow called? Beef? Hey, how many of y'all like a steak? Okay, first off, the word cow is an old English word, and it means cow. Same word, cow. But do you know that beef and steak are French words? Because poor people couldn't eat beef or steak. Only the rich, only the kings, only the princes, only the barons, and they all spoke French. So guess what? Cow, that's, everybody could see a cow in their farm. That's, the word, that's an English word. The French word, beef. What about chicken? How many of y'all know chicken? Or fowl. Those words are Old English. 
What do we call meat from a chicken? Poultry. And guess what? Poultry is a French word. How many of y'all know what a pig is? Pig is an old English word. What is the meat of a pig called? Pork. Pork is a French word. Why? Only the rich and powerful could eat meat. And those people spoke French. That's how the English language would develop. French would come in and it changed from Old English to what we know as Middle English. And it's during the time of Middle English that a man by the name of John Wycliffe would translate the New Testament and one of his disciples, John Purvey, would translate all the Old Testament into the English language. This would be the first complete Bible in English. However, the problem is John Wycliffe and his disciples did not know Greek and did not know Hebrew. They only knew Latin. So they took the Latin translation of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, and translated it into English. But this is the very first English translation of the Bible. Let me show you the difference between the Wycliffe Bible and the King James Bible when it comes to John 3.16. Do you all know John 3.16? Pretty much all of you all have memorized that verse, right? Well, here's the way it sounds in the Wycliffe Bible. For God loved so the world that he gaffed his own begotten son, that each man that believeth in him perish not, but have everlasting leaf. Pretty much sounds like our King James Bible, doesn't it? Just the language was a bit different. But that's John 3.16 from the Wycliffe Bible. Now, the people that were uh, followers of John Wycliffe would take these Bibles, they would make copies of them, they would give them to preachers that were called Lollards. And the Lollards would go throughout England preaching the Bible in English. They would open up the English Bible and start preaching to people. And it would attract a crowd. Remember, when you went to a church in England in the 13 and 1400s and you sat in the pew, you were listening to a priest behind the pulpit reading to you from a Bible in Latin and preaching to you in Latin. He wasn't even translating the Bible into English. He was just reading and preaching in Latin. And you sat there and you took it because you didn't know Latin. You just sat there and listened to it because that was your responsibility. You had to go to church. You had to sit there and you had to listen to the preacher preach. But the Lollards would be standing out in the open marketplace or over in the fields. And they would stand and they would open their Bible and instead of reading the Bible in Latin, they would read the Bible in English. And people would hear them preach in English. Crowds began to form. People began to listen to them. And the priest got mad about it. So much so because John Wycliffe had some unique views. He made the argument that the Mass, what they called the Mass, which is what we would call the Lord's Supper, but they take it a little bit more seriously than we do. They believe that when they offer up what they call the Mass or the Lord's Supper, that they are literally offering Jesus Christ body and blood again. They are making a sacrifice of Him again every time they offer it. And when you take part in it, that the bread and the... And you don't take any part of the wine. But when you take that bread, you are taking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They argue that the body, if you cut off a piece of meat, it's going to have some blood in it. So when you eat the bread and you're taking in the flesh of Jesus, you're getting a little bit of the blood. So only the priests drink the wine. Did you know that in the Catholic Church? That's true. But they argue that it literally became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Physically became it. It was a miracle that was performed every time someone took the Mass. John Wycliffe said that's ridiculous. It's called transubstantiation. He said that's not what happens. He argued against it. He argued that the king should have control of the government of England and not the Pope. People began to hate it. It became very popular because they were preaching out of his Bible, so much so that 20 years after Wycliffe died, at the Council of Constance, they decreed that John Wycliffe should be dug up and his bones burned and his ashes poured in the nearest river. They hated him so bad. And then the king of England passed a law very shortly after that that said any person that had an English Bible would either have all their property taken from them or they would be executed for the simple crime of owning a Bible in English. But the amazing thing is that of all the medieval books that we know of, have you ever heard of the Canterbury Tales from school or things like that, these medieval works? The medieval work in English that we have more copies of than anything else is the Wycliffe Bible. People wouldn't give it up. Even under the sentence of death. And let me show you how extreme they were with it. 
If a priest is talking to a child in England in the 1400s or early 1500s, and the child decides to tell the priest the Lord's Prayer, and he gives the Lord's Prayer in English, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If he gave it in English, the priest would immediately call the authorities, go find that kid's parents and arrest them, and sometimes execute them, because the child knew the Lord's Prayer in English, which means they had an English Bible. Just for quoting the Lord's Prayer in English. They took it very seriously. And it became a very dangerous thing, yet people still flocked to hear these lawyer preachers, even under persecution and threat of death, because they wanted to hear the Bible in their own language. One of those people that came out of the Lollard movement, we'll talk. let me give you this first before I talk about that person that came out of the Lollard movement. Because of the persecution of the Bible in English, all these nations printed a Bible in their own language before England did. And they were. The Latin Bible was printed in 1456. The German Bible was printed in 1466. The Italian Bible was printed in 1471. The Czech Bible was printed in 1475. The French Bible was printed in 1477. The Spanish Bible was printed in 1478. The Portuguese Bible was printed in 1495. The Serbian Bible, do you all remember Bosnia and Serbia and all that from the late 90s? That's in Eastern Europe. That was printed in 1495. The Ethiopic Bible, that's for, for the Bible for the Ethiopian-speaking um, people of Ethiopia. It was printed in 1513. The Danish Bible was printed in 1515. Hey, check this out. The Arabic Bible, the Bible in the Arabic language for Muslims was printed in 1516. And the White Russian Bible, or the Belarus Bible, was printed in 1517. All these um, countries had a Bible printed in their own language before England did because of the danger of printing a Bible. But a person who came out of the Lollard movement, there was a man by the name of William Tyndale. He grew up in a home, no doubt, that the Lollards had, um, had influence upon. Many people believe William Tyndale was a Baptist. There is some evidence to view that he may have been a Baptist. But William Tyndale would be the man who would print the first New Testament in English. This New Testament, which was printed in 1526, would be the basis of English translations all the way up to the King James Bible. You go, by the way, right there, that is a page from the Gospel of John from the first Tyndale Bible. I meant Tyndale New Testament. There's a page from that Bible. Because of him translating the Bible, he would be martyred on October 6, 1536. William Tyndale wasn't satisfied with just translating and printing the Bible, the New Testament in English. He wanted to print the Old Testament in English. But the problem was, living in England, that all the Jews were kicked out of England in the um, late 1200s. They were kicked out of England. And the ones who wouldn't leave, they killed them and took everything they had, all their possessions, and gave them to the king. The Jews were not allowed to come back into England until the middle of the 1600s. So during William Tyndale's time, there wasn't a Jew living in England. These Jews knew how to speak, knew how to read and write and speak Hebrew, but nobody in England did because they didn't have any Jews there. So William Tyndale fled England and went to Germany and went to Holland, went to the Netherlands, and found Jews and learned how to read and write Hebrew. And he began to translate the Old Testament into English. He had translated the Old Testament from Genesis to about 2 Samuel. He had translated the book of Jonah into English, I mean into English, and he was working on the rest of the Old Testament when he was betrayed by a friend and given over to the Catholic authorities. And in the years October, on the in the year 1536, on October the 6th, um, that's almost the anniversary coming up on it. William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake because he had translated the Bible into English. Now, why didn't they burn him alive? Well, they they strangled him first for this reason. He was a scholar. And since you had a degree and you were a man of learning, they didn't kill you like a petty criminal. They would at least do you a favor and strangle you to death before they burned you. And so that was, showing, that was a little bit of a mercy to him. His last words before he died were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Remember, the king had already declared it was illegal to print the Bible into English. The king of England, when Tyndale was martyred, was a very famous king. I know some of y'all know this name. Henry VIII. What is Henry VIII known for? All his wives, right? At that time, Henry VIII 
was one of the greatest Catholic kings in the known world. Big supporter of the Pope. Pope was giving him medals like crazy. He thought he was the greatest Catholic ruler. He was married to a woman named Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, who was the sister to a man who was the king of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles. Catherine of Aragon did not give him a male son, and Henry wanted a male son. So Henry came up with an idea. I'm going to have my marriage annulled to Catherine and find me a woman who can bear me a son. By the way, science has now realized that the only person who determines the sex of a child is the man. It's not the woman's fault. It was Henry's fault, yet he still would kill all his wives trying to find himself a son. So he wants to divorce his, annul his marriage, divorce his wife. The Pope wouldn't let him do it. Why? Because the Holy Roman Emperor had his armies around Rome, and it was his sister that he was wanting to divorce. The Pope said no. Henry said, I'm going to do it anyway. So the, England left the Catholic Church. They started the Anglican Church. Henry got his new marriage. Eventually he got a son. But as it was started to be produced, he said, if we're going to have an English church, why not have an English Bible? And so other translations started to be produced. These versions followed Tyndale's New Testament. The Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Matthews Bible in 1537. I have a page from a Tyndale and a Matthews Bible on the, pay, on the, um, on the tables back there. The Great Bible in 1539. The problem with these, again, is there's no Jews living in England. None of the scholars of England knew Hebrew. So when they translated the Old Testament, they used what Tyndale had translated, but then for the rest of it, they translated the Old Testament from the Latin and from Martin Luther's German Bible because they didn't have any other language they knew. So these Bibles were still not translated solely from the original languages. The first Bible to be translated solely from the original languages would be the Geneva Bible in 1560. Some unique things about the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is the very first English Bible to have a Bible in verses. Every Bible before did not have verses. This is the very first Bible to have verses in them to help you memorize Scripture, and that's one of the purposes, and also just to be able to take a text by itself, they put it in verses to help you find a passage easier. What's the purpose of verses? And it's the first English Bible to be translated solely from the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. This was the Bible of the common people. They dedicated it to the new Queen of England, a woman by the name of Elizabeth I. They dedicated their Bible to her. They were living in Geneva because they had fled England because Elizabeth's sister was the Queen of England at the time, a woman by the name of Mary, who we know today as Bloody Mary, and she was killing every Protestant she could find in England. So these men fled and translated their Bible in a, in a city that gave them freedom, and it was the city of Geneva. They dedicated the Bible to, uh, to Mary, I mean to Queen Elizabeth, because she was the new queen. But she didn't like the Bible. She didn't like it very much. The reason why? This Bible is known for its strongly anti-Catholic notes. I mean, it was strongly against the Catholics. And at that time, England was sitting in a very precarious place. You see, Mary's husband was the king of Spain. And when Mary died, the king of Spain asked Elizabeth to marry him. So he would become the king of England. She refused. She wanted England to remain Protestant. And so the king of Spain said, hey, I'm going to come and invade your country. And they were, he was putting together a great armada. Half the country of England was still Catholic. And she was afraid if she actually supported this Geneva Bible with its anti-Catholic notes, that that half of the population that was still Catholic would rise up and join the Spaniards and help overthrow her kingdom. So when they dedicated the Bible to her, she said, I don't want anything to do with it. I want no part of it. Even though it was very anti-Catholic, it still was faithful to the teachings of the Bible. Very faithful to it. And if you look at the Geneva Bible, it would, it's very familiar to what we see today as a study Bible. There were notes everywhere in it explaining what the different things were trying to say in the Bible. Very fascinating Bible. I have a copy of a Geneva Bible back there if you would like to look at it after the service. Elizabeth said she wanted to make her own Bible. So she would authorize her own Bible. I hope you understand, the King James Bible is many times known as the authorized version. It's called the authorized version because it was authorized by a king of England, King James I, where we get the name King James Bible. But it is not the first authorized version to come out in English. Um, the Bishop's Bible was also an authorized version. The first authorized version was the Great Bible, 
it was authorized by Henry VIII. The second one was the Bishop's Bible. It was authorized by Queen Elizabeth. It's called the Bishop's Bible because it was translated and supported by the bishops in England, but it was not accepted by the common people. So I want you to picture this now in your mind. It's the year 1575. You go to a church in England, and you're carrying your Geneva Bible, most popular Bible in England in 1575. So popular for so long, in fact, that when the pilgrims came to America on the Mayflower in 1620, they did not carry a King James Bible with them. They carried a Geneva Bible. They loved the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible would be printed until the 16, through the 1650s. It was not accepted, though, by the bishops. So you're coming to church carrying your Geneva Bible. You sit down and you're ready to hear the preacher preach. The preacher gets up behind the pulpit, their bishop, and he opens up his bishop's Bible and starts to read out of the bishop's Bible. You have a Geneva Bible. The bishop says, I want you to buy a bishop's Bible and read along with me. You say, no way, I want you to get a Geneva's Bible and I want you to read along with me. And they started to get in a fight over it. They would fight for nearly 50 years on this. Okay? On the, whether or not we're going to use a Geneva or whether or not we're going to use a bishop's Bible. They fought back and forth. Nobody would give in. Nobody would give up. Hey, does that sound familiar to you today? You go to some of these churches today, you're sitting down with your New Living Translation, the guy gets up with a new King James Bible, the music minister's carrying a New American Standard, this person's carrying an NIV, it's all over the place, there's just confusion. Well, they were having a hard time with the confusion back then. Nobody wanted to give up their Bible. The bishop said, ours is the best. The Geneva said, hey, ours is the most accurate and the best. Did you not see our notes? They're so anti-Catholic and they're so faithful, you should be ashamed carrying a bishop's Bible. They wouldn't agree with each other on it. So finally, so finally, they came to the king. Elizabeth would die. A new king came to the throne. King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England and he's now sitting on the throne. And the people, the bishops, and the common people approach the king and make a request. They say, look, we can't agree with one another. The bishops, they like that bishop's Bible. But we, we like the Geneva Bible. No one's coming to an agreement. So how about we just make a deal? We'll produce a new translation. One that the bishops can agree with, and one that the common people can agree with. And that translation would become known as the King James Bible. That would be printed in 1611. The King James Version, or Bible, was translated because of the dispute over the Geneva and the Bishop's Bible. They would not agree with each other. Now the King of England made, made them agree to something. He said, if I allow you to make this translation, this new translation, if I authorize it, I have two conditions. And here are the two conditions. Number one, my first condition is you have to leave the Apocrypha in the Bible. Now, what is the Apocrypha? Some of y'all are shaking your head. I don't know what the Apocrypha is. Our Bibles don't contain it, but if you have a Catholic Bible, they have the Apocrypha in it. The Apocrypha were a group of books that started after the book of Malachi in their Bible and ended before the book of Matthew. You had books like First and Second Maccabees. You had the book like Ezra's and um, several other books. These books sat in the middle. That's the reason why a Catholic Bible is larger than an English Bible. Now, for the church throughout the centuries, early centuries, they had that in their Bible, but they never viewed it as Scripture. The Apocrypha was viewed probably the same way for our mind to understand it, the way we would view Pilgrim's Progress. How many of y'all know the book Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody ever read it by John Bunyan? How many of y'all think it's a good book? It is a good book, right? Hey, would you ever do your devotions out of Pilgrim's Progress? Hey, would you have a problem, though, if the preacher got up and said, I want you to take your Pilgrim's Progress and open to chapter 2. We're going to talk about Pilgrim when he was going to Vanity Fair. That wouldn't be a good sermon, would it? Hey, it was highly regarded. It's a good book to read, but it's not Scripture. And that's the way the church had viewed it over the years. The Catholics in the 1500s to fight the Reformation argued that it was Scripture because some of their ridiculous teachings, such as purgatory, the only place they could find support for it are prayers to the saints, the dead saints, like they can hear your prayers. They made it out of the Apocrypha. 
It's not considered Scripture back then, so the Catholic Church declared it to be Scripture. When the Catholic Church declared it to be Scripture, the Protestants started saying, let's take it out of our Bibles then. Because we don't want anybody to be confused with that false teaching. King, uh, King James, his mother was um, Queen Mary. Mary, Queen of Scots. Some of y'all may have heard of Mary, Queen of Scots. She was Catholic. He had some Catholic family. He was used to having an Apocrypha in his Bible, and he said, I don't want the Apocrypha removed. So if you're going to translate it, you've got to leave the Apocrypha in. Point number two, he said, I don't want the Bible to have any notes like that Geneva Bible had notes. The reason why is he felt those notes were attacking the divine right of kings. He said, I was appointed by God to be the king, and I don't want any Bible to question my authority from God to be king of England. So he said, no notes. And that's the reason why for a long time you never saw notes in a King James Bible. I think it was only maybe the uh, John Brown Bible in the 1800s that really started pushing notes in a Bible. But for about two centuries, you never saw notes in a Bible. And it's those two stipulations the king, that King James would make. Now, this Bible would become very popular. As I told you before, the Geneva Bible would still be printed into the 1650s. But they started to recognize the superiority of the King James Bible, so much so by, that by the year 1675, they did a survey of churches throughout the realm of England, and they could only find one church in the entire country of England or Scotland that was using a Geneva Bible. And it was a small church in Scotland that was still using a Geneva Bible in 1675. But we don't know why they were using the Geneva Bible. Some people are arguing that they were using the Geneva Bible because it was a poor church and they couldn't afford a new Bible. So they're just using the Bible they had always had. They couldn't afford a King James. They were just using the Bible they had. And um, it was recognized within 100 years, it's the only Bible being printed in England. And everybody was happy for it to be that way. Now, there were revisions made to the King James Bible after 1611. How many of y'all have ever heard this? You're an idiot if you call your Bible a 1611 King James Bible. You're not using a 1611, you're using a 1769 King James Bible. Have you ever heard that before? They used to use that all the time at Bible college. You're so stupid if you call, if you say you use a King James 1611. Well, let me tell you what they're talking about. There were revisions to the King James made in 1629, 1638, 1762, and 1769. These were not revisions like we see in modern versions but were mainly corrections of printing errors and also the modernizing of spelling. Now, I want you to understand, when the King James Bible started to be printed, they made a lot of printer's errors. They were not errors with the King James Bible. They were just leaving words out. Most famously, about within 20 years of the King James Bible, the man who printed the first one, his name was Robert Barker. He was making a new printing of the King James Bible, and he printed a Bible that would be known throughout time as the Wicked Bible. And this Wicked Bible is called the Wicked Bible because when he got to the Ten Commandments, he's putting thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. When he got to thou shalt not commit adultery, he wasn't paying attention and he left out the word not. So that that tenth com that commandment said, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury found out about it and he got very mad and he made Robert Barker buy back every one of those Bibles and burn them. There's only three of those Bibles in existence today. Robert Barker went bankrupt. Back then, if you went bankrupt, you went to something that was not pleasant called a debtor's prison. And Robert Barker would spend the rest of his life in a debtor's prison, the man who printed the 1611 King James Bible, because of a printer's error. He left the knot out of thou shalt not commit adultery. These were the revisions they were making. They were correcting those mistakes that the printers had made and also modernizing spelling. If you look at a King James Bible over there, these were spelled with a U. U's were spelled with a V. It's different. By the way, think about a W, by the way. It looks like two V's, right? But what do we call it? We call it a W. It's an it's a archaic term from back then. By the way, in 1611 when the King James Bible was printed, did you know we didn't have the letter J in our alphabet? The letter J was spelled with an I. It was called a long I and later on became a J. And it didn't become a J until about 1650. So if you look at that King James Bible back there, 1611, you'll see I's for J's. 
they had to modernize the spelling as well. So let me show you some of these revisions that were made between 1611 and 1769. Now I want you to see the yellow um, text, that's our King James Bible, okay? The white text is the 1611. Just want to show you a difference between them. 2 Kings 23.1, it reads in the 1611, this book of the covenant. In 1769, our King James Bible reads the book of this covenant. Do you see the difference between the two? They just flipped the the and the this. That's all they did. Look at Daniel 3.15. In the 1611, it read a fiery furnace. Every other place where it mentions a fiery furnace in Daniel, it always said a burning fiery furnace, but a printer's error left out the burning in Daniel 3.15. So our King James Bible corrected that, and it said a burning fiery furnace. Acts 24.24, 24, talking about a woman, it said in the 1611 that she was a Jew. And in our Bible, they changed it to the female form, which was a Jewess. The only one that you maybe could say is a severe change, but I think you could see this is a spelling mistake, is Psalm 69.32. In the 1611, it says, seek good. In our Bible, it says, seek God. Do you see the difference between the word good and God? What's the difference? An extra O. So do you see I'm talking about spelling errors, printing errors, and other revisions. That's the revisions they were making. In other words, our Bible is practically the same as a 1611. There's nothing wrong with calling it a 1611. And when somebody says you're an idiot for doing that, they're the one that doesn't understand. They just heard somebody else say it. Let me show you the difference between a modern revision in the King James. How about the new King James Bible? Let me show you the difference between the verses, and this is what we'll close with right here. This is a lead-in to next week's um, message. 1 Kings 22:38 in the King James Bible and in the New King James Version. Let me show you what it says in the New King. I mean, in the King James Bible. 1 Kings 22:38 reads. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. It's talking about Ahab. And they washed his armor. Do you see what's highlighted and underlined? Now look at what it says in the New King James. Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed. That's a big difference, don't you think? Doesn't it make more sense that they washed his armor rather than, hey, the harlots were bathing while they cleaned his blood. They don't make any sense. Yet, this is what we're talking about with modern revisions. We're going to talk about the modern revisions, the problems with them. Hey, we're going to talk about the problems people say the King James Bible has next week. And I'm going to show you why the King James is right and why modern versions are wrong. I'm going to encourage you next week to bring an NIV Bible. If you've had questions about this, I want to encourage you, you bring your NIV Bible next week. It may be the only time you're ever invited to do it. Bring your NIV Bible to Whitfield Baptist Church. Bring your New American Standard Bible to Whitfield Baptist Church. Bring your New Living Translation Bible to Whitfield Baptist Church. I want you to see the difference with your own eyes between a modern language Bible and the King James Bible. And when I show you these differences, I'm not just talking about the use of modern words. It's going to disturb you the differences between the two. I hope you'll be back next week. God bless each and every one of you. I hope this has been a blessing to you. 